Irish elections, terrorism, the coronavirus, and positive news on America's future with socialism. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent. We oui, oui, mean the French accent. And you stay for the principles. Today's going to be a bit of a, a different show because. Today I need to talk to you about a couple of things that are, to some of you, they're not going to make a lot of sense. Maybe they will and maybe they won't, but I've always been an open book. And the last week has been quite honestly surreal. And I won't bore you with the details, but I've spoken out in the in the past about what was happening in this country. And a lot of you very kindly messaged me during the week, and I appreciated everyone who did. Saying, what does the election mean in Ireland? What's going to happen? What's How do you feel about it? Are you worried? Are you concerned? And I don't know how to answer that, and that's been honest. It's still very early days, but the results are not good. In fact, the results are really, really, really bad. And this week, I finally learned a life lesson that I never understood. You know, if you're growing up, when you're young, you know, it's always easy to think when you're, you know, when you're young and there's, I don't know, arrogance, cockiness, and guys, testosterone, you know, there's, there's always this point in time where people always say to you, you know, you know, you can do a lot of things in this world, but, you know, you got to pick and choose your fights. You know, there's going to be times where you're just going to have to shut up and you're not going to like it. And of course, you know, I've been a, you know, guys have testosterone and, you know, you're young. Everyone's young and arrogant at one point in time. Yeah, I'll never do that. That won't be me. No, that won't be me. That might be you, but not me, baby. And this last week, I finally saw what that lesson, what that advice actually truly meant. There are going to be times in life where you got to pick and choose your fights. And sometimes you got to realize it really sucks when you can't fight. But this is where it's absolutely critical to have that focus. To have that focus of what your role is, 
what your journey is and what you want to achieve with your life. Why did I start talking like this right at the start of the show? Because of what's going on. What's going on in Ireland. And I hope some of you don't judge me negatively. And if you do and I let you down, I apologize. But going forward, I have to be very careful what I say. I have got to be very careful because there's a lot of things I'm involved in or trying to get involved in behind the scenes that you don't know about. When I said to you last year and I said to you this year that I am going to make a difference in your country. I am going to make a positive influence in your country. I mean it. I don't know whether I'll be successful at it or not, but I'm putting together a plan. Now, this plan has adapted, evolved, changed, been, you know, etchy sketched out quite a few times, you know, different directions have changed, but there is a plan. And as I saw what happened unfold the last, honestly, two weeks, I realized and I kind of got to a point where I went, you know what? You got to be careful. You got to be careful. You cannot have anything affect your personal safety, your job security, your mission. And then as I saw the events and actually unfold on Saturday and Sunday and Monday, and the results came in, and especially in the area I'm in, I have done, had to do a lot of self-reflecting and go, is this my face? Is it worth dying for on this battlefield? And every answer inside me said no. There's nothing I can do to change what's happening in Ireland. The way you change it is by changing it around the world. The way we change it is not through ballot boxes, it's true ideas. So going forward, even privately, I won't be discussing Irish politics. I don't want to discuss politics at all. You know, I've, I have no interest in discussing about who's going to be the next president, who's going to be the next senator, who's going to be the next prime minister in Ireland. It's just not what I want to talk about. It's not what I'm passionate about. I discuss it at times because I think it's important. But I want to discuss ideas. I want to discuss principles. I want to discuss what's going on in our world and actually have discussions based around freedom, about the individual, about pursuing your happiness. That's where my passion is. So as I go through this change, I would ask you to understand and try and put yourself in my shoes and understand that this is a decision I made. And you may like it, you may disagree with it, you may hate it. You may call me a chicken for not calling out what is really bad government. Man, you'd be all right. But this is not a hill I can die on. I will die on any other hill. I will die on the hill of fighting for the con- your constitution. I will die on the hill standing for freedom, 
for letting people pursue their happiness. I'll die on those hills any day you want me to. And yes, I mean literally die. Because I believe I can make a change. But what's going to happen here? No. You know, it's also what I find very ironic, humorous, funny, whatever way you, word you want to fill in the blank, is sometimes you get prompted and things come into your mind. And I'm like, why did that come into my mind? Why did that saying come into my mind? And it was only on last week's show that I shared a quote that I read maybe 20 years ago for the first time. And it's, I love quotes and I love, you know, the, you know, sayings that people say because they're much smarter than I am. And I think it was on last week's show where I spoke about Immanuel Kant, where I said, there are many things I believe that I shall never say, but I shall never say the things that I do not believe. If you are interested in the Irish election, and you're a new-term listener or a long-term listener, there's a full archive of what I stand for. I'm blessed to be with this Blaze network for nearly six years. I was there when Obama was president. What I talk about does not change. I will never say things that I don't believe. I will come before you, before this microphone, and make the case. Even when it's not popular. I've made the case for freedom when it wasn't popular under Obama. I've made the case for freedom and free markets when it's not popular under Trump. I'll make it under the next president and the next administration. That's okay. And I will make the case in principle terms to Irish people, to English people, to any person I can. But I'm going to have to ask you, when it comes to the Irish election, you can guess my opinion. And it's probably true, especially if you know what I stand for. But coming out and being an outspoken critic, quite honestly, there's nothing for me to gain. I don't have a big Irish audience. But if you want to do your research, yes, things are as bad as they I'm making them out. Go research the results. Go research the party that got the highest percentage of the first preference votes. Go research their history. Go research some of the heinous acts they have done. This is the thing that's facing Ireland. But this is where I do want to talk to you about briefly about politics. Whether you like the party that's won the highest percentage preference vote in Ireland or not, we have to understand that this could happen anywhere. Because what you have in Ireland, if you break it down to its core principle, is this. Is that since the foundation of Ireland over a hundred years ago, it's been a two-party system. You had Fianna Fáil and you had Fianna Gael. Two parties. One pretends to be right-ish, centre-right, and one pretends to be centre-left-ish. And shoot, they're all left. They're all big government. No one is freedom. And what you've seen over the last 20, 30 years is these two parties historically between them would get at least 80% of the votes. And then you'd have all these other little parties like the party in question, you'd have Labour, you'd have the Green Party, all getting this little percentage, the remaining 20. 
And literally what it would be depending on it was who formed government was did one of the two parties get 50%, which for a good period of time, one of them always did. Or did they get just under 50 and they had to get a coalition government with another party? Well, what you've seen over the last 10, 20 years is that percentage has been eroding to the last election that happened last Saturday where they combined got the lowest percentage. It was in the mid-40s. The reason I want to talk to you about these numbers is because a lot of parties in a lot of countries are based around a two-party system. America is based around a two-party system. Ireland is based around a two-party system. England is based around a two-party system. You just happen to have other smaller parties. The reason we have to be very honest about what happened and talk about it from a principal point of view is because at any moment in time, a party can strike lightning and can build a message around change. And that change is something that I'm just so sick of you and I'm so sick of you. They want change. Let's give them a chance. Oh, we're just so tired of you and your games and your games because you're all the same. You're talking about change. Let's give you a chance and let's see what you can do. Do you think that could happen anywhere else in the world? Do you think that could happen in America? Do you think that could happen? Do you think there's a consensus in America of about 40, 50, 60% of Americans who look at the Republican Party, who look at the Democratic Party and kind of go, you are both horrible. You are both disgusting. We can't stand you. Because right now, all I ever see in so many friends on both sides of the aisle is going, oh, no, my side is better. It's never my side is great or my side is good. It's always my side is just better. Because that's how low the bar is for so many people, even in their own language, and they don't realize this. I want to talk to you later on in the show about what your people are doing right now and why I actually have a lot of optimism for your country. And a lot of optimism that we actually can start turning the tide towards freedom. But do you think there's even a small percent chance that someone could strike a chord in America? Because what you've seen over the last two elections have been a bit of a, you know, a lightning rod for that to happen. A bit of a potential look into the looking glass. Whether you like him or whether you dislike him, Donald Trump tapped into a lot of anger. I just don't like anyone in D.C. Both of them are sucks. Drain the swamp, baby. Now, again, whether you like Donald Trump or don't like Donald Trump, you can't deny that's what he did into it. He tapped into. You can also tap into the resentment towards the media. And now here we are in 2020, where you literally have a candidate running for the Democratic Party who's openly admitting, yeah, I'm a Democratic Socialist. This guy has a record of saying some of the most horrific things and promoting some of the most horrific administrations around the world. Go look and research what he said on Soviet Russia. Go listen and research what he said on people like Castro in Cuba. He's talking about change just as much. At some point in time, if we want to make a difference, we all got to start looking at ourselves and go, what type of change do we want? Because while I see the change that Donald Trump talks about, and I see the change Bernie Sanders talks about, and I see the change so many other people talk about, 
You know what's funny? I never see the change when it comes to let's talk about the Constitution. Where is that change? Where is that change about having a discussion about what the role of government is? What is the change about talking about what man's freedoms are? Where's the change talking about the role of free market economics in the world today? Where's the change debating any of these? Because if you care anything about your country, regardless of whether you live in, whether you're an American, whether you're an Irishman, whether you're an English person, whether you're, I don't know, you could be a French man listening to this, and if you are, welcome. <laughs> you can be anywhere. There's change going on in our world. And I would ask you to look around at any country and kind of go, where is the change for freedom? Where is the change for freedom, for individual liberties? Or is it just a new party with new slogans, with new ideas, with new wordings, but it all boils down to the same core message, government is the solution. Government is the solution. Where are the people standing out there kind of going, hey, no, it's my job to change the world for a better place. Where are the Christians around the world actually talking about it? Because you know one of the big issues that happened in the Irish election? All these polls came out afterwards. One of the most influential points that people voted on and had one of the concerns was homelessness. And what is the Catholic Church in Ireland? Because Ireland, well, supposedly is a Christian Catholic nation. What are the Catholic Church doing? Nothing. You have this big priest over here who's famous. Because in fairness, he does do a lot of work with the homeless. Instead of actually thinking, hey, guess what? I need to call the Catholic Church out any time I do interviews because, you know, I'm a reverend father. I, we need to do more. Every time he does an interview, it's always, what's the government doing to fix homelessness? What's the government doing to fix homelessness? What's the government doing? And we're calling on the government to spend more money and spend more money and spend more money. Gee, how about you go to your own, you know, religion? How about instead of tax it, taxing other people and taking their stuff to get your issue fixed? How about you do it? How about you go to the bank? How about, because, you know, it's not like he's a Protestant or, you know, a Mormon or any of these. He's part of the Catholic Church, which has a lot of money. It has its own bank. It has gold chalices. How about selling some of those gold chalices and fixing the homeless problem? Oh, no, we can't do that. Government, 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 baby. What happened to the people who used to believe the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help? What about that individual spirit where it says, if there's a problem, we will fix it? Where are those people today? Where are those people taking a leading spot in the world? When you look around at the world, when you look around at people, we did a special on this guy a couple of weeks ago, Martin Luther King. Where are the people like Martin Luther King looking at a big, big issue in society and not really talking about government solutions, but talking about changing hearts and minds, making the case for freedom, making the case for, you know what, let's judge a man by the content of his character, not the color of his skin. Where are those people today? You see, everyone wants to talk about government and government is this and government is better under Donald Trump and government is better under Andrew Yang or Amy Klobuchar or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Santa Claus or Vermin Supreme, baby. But yet no one wants to talk about, hmm, what's my role? What's, what's my job? 
The simple answer is this. This world has many issues. And I'm going to talk to you about something I'm really positive about going forward. But if we want to make major inroads and we want to start talking about the discussion, we need to be the change we want to be part of. We need to be the change and make the case for freedom and start winning arguments again and winning discussions again with people. Because if we don't, if we don't make the case for the Constitution, if not you, who? If not now, when? If Is there anything that you see in the world today that you kind of go, the Constitution isn't the answer? The Constitution is the answer. And I say this to my friends respectfully on the right who are terrified of the potential of a Bernie Sanders presidency. Okay, gotcha. Johnny's a democratic socialist, gotcha. I know why though, those are really bad people, trust me. I know really bad people. But if you actually enforce the Constitution, guess what? You can have a democratic socialist president. Why? Because Article 2 gives the presidency zero power. Would it be ideal? No. Would it be a nightmare? Well, it wouldn't be fun. I wouldn't like the idea of Bernie Sanders meeting with world leaders as the figurehead of America. It's not the kind of image I think America should be portraying to the world. But would it be a disaster from a legislation point of view? No. Because guess what? All legislative powers in Congress. We have the answers, guys and girls. It's just whether we want to put the political games aside. I come before you today to ask you, it's time to put the political swords aside, guys and girls. Because if you don't, you may find yourself in a situation where I'm in one day, and please God, that never happens. Where you have to ask yourself, is this a mountain you're you're willing to die on? Is this your fight? And trust me when I say it, I don't care what the situation is. It sucks when you have to say, you know what? It's not my fight. Because everything inside me goes, you know what? Let's Let's just highlight everything they're doing. But it's not my fight. I need to be the voice that comes before you each and every week making the case for freedom, making the case for American exceptionalism. Because right now in Europe, Europe, Ireland, England, it's all about government, baby. I believe my mission is to remind America why you're exceptional and to hopefully inspire you in some little way for you to remember and to become once again that beacon of hope of liberty for, liberty for the world. You need to be that Statue of Liberty. It's not a Republican idea. It's not a Democratic idea. It is a very much a human idea. That man is meant to be free. Man is not meant to be shackled or chained by any government, whether it's left, right, top or bottom, blue or red. Man is meant to be free. And man has a God-given right to pursue his or her happiness. And if they pursue their happiness and that results in a financial reward, they have the God-given right to keep that financial reward. These are the principles we stand on. And these are the principles we will continue to promote each and every week on this show. I want to talk to you about a a situation that's happening in England right now. And one of the things we need to understand is that there are people in the media and talking heads and media personalities who love a rigged game. 
And this is something I would encourage everyone, because this happens in America as well. They get the talking points from their political side. And all they literally do, you'll know these people, they're on left and right. All they want to do is yell at you. you got to think this. This is the talking point. i got to say it to you so many times so that it's ingrained in your head and your mind and your soul. And then you go shoot your talking points at them. And then you go and talk to other people. And all you literally do is shout your talking points to each other. Because we all get so balkanized and based on sides. I want to talk to you about a couple of issues that are around the world today that need to be addressed. But they need to be addressed in the sense of... What are human rights? What are civil liberties? What rights do you have? And the first place, the first thing we need to do is have a discussion about where rights come from. Your civil liberties, regardless of how many you believe you have or disagree that you have, where did they come from? You see, every other nation in the history of the world believes your civil liberties come from government. And they're always up for discussion. If they're not, it's just a, an accepted carte blanche to, hey, you, well, we're not discussing this. It's obvious everyone has it. But it's not an obvious everyone has this for an unlimited period of time. If there's all of a sudden a movement or change has been called for, that you don't have these rights anymore, then they're up for discussion. Then it goes to the ballot box through a referendum like Brexit. Or, you know, a, a popular vote where it's like, hey, well, this party's running to take away that right or give that right or give extra protection to those people. Then if they win, they get to, in, you know, follow their mandates. America was exceptionally different and unique, whether you agree with it or not. But you talked about rights coming from your creator. You spoke about the principles of nature's law and nature's God. Where do rights come from? And are your rights ever up for discussion? I ask this because I want to talk to you about two stories. And the first one comes from Great Britain. Great Britain has a major issue going on right now. And it's a major issue which you would hope. And you would, in an ideal world, if you had a magic wand and you could wave a magic wand and go, what do you need to happen here? You would hope that people would put the political games aside, that people would put their talking points down and would actually engage in the discussion. Because while people make this out to be a simple discussion, it isn't, because we're going to have it right now. That problem is terrorism. Two weeks ago, England, and specifically London, had yet another minor terrorist attack, and some people were hurt. There's this spate of constant terrorist attacks happening in England. One happens maybe every three or four or five months. And it's usually a lone, lone man. This one had a knife. It was a knife that was bought for three ninety nine in some shop. Before other attacks involved, you remember you might remember the London Bridge terrorist attack, where just he had a car and he just started knocking people down. All lone wolves. But what's happened in the last two terrorist attacks is they've both been in jail and they both got what they call early release for good behavior. Now, what's happening in England, that's horrific enough as it is. You know, no country, I don't care whether you're English, whether you're Irish, whether you're an American, I don't want to see terrorism in any country. France, you know, if you're, if you're a long-term listener, we discussed those years ago. I remember those really bad attacks in France. They were horrific. 
No one ever wants to switch on the news and see a terrorist attack. But what's happening in England right now is because everyone's so balkanized on terrorism is bad. Yeah, I got you. I, be- I agree with you. And then you have the other side who's going, oh, it's all about civil liberties. You know, you can't infringe on people's rights. What's funny about this debate is the people who are like, you know, terrorism is bad. Let's just lock them up and throw away the key are usually the people who are, I'm not going to say pro-freedom because they're not, but maybe more open to some version of freedom. The people who are like the civil liberties people, you know, we got to have these civil liberties. They're usually from the left. They're usually all these people who are like, government is great, baby. We love government. And all sides in the UK that I've seen and I've listened into a few shows discussing this, it's all just their talking points from one side to another. So I want to discuss some of the stuff that's going on right now. And what they're trying to do is the people who are so afraid of terrorism right now are just going, we just need to lock them up. We need to pass a law, no early parole, no discussion, just lock them up and throw away the key. And if that's forever, fair enough. It's If it's permanently been detained, that's fine. Let's discuss this for a moment, shall we? Because I can see a lot of people in America kind of like thinking, I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any, look, if you're a terrorist and you're from Al-Qaeda and, or Al-Shabaab or any of these, or ISIS, and you do an attack, I don't really care about your rights. Okay. I have a funny feeling there are going to be people on that side. But here's the thing. One of the things when you're in talk radio or on the TV or you're in the media personality, you got to make something fancy-dancy for social media, is it's very easy just to make a point. Just throw away the key. But sometimes when you do this, you're potentially hurting yourself. And I want to explain why. Because what I'd ask you is, write the legislation. Think of yourself as actually a congressman or woman, or a senator, writing the legislation that you believe should be enacted for terrorism. And then ask yourself, is there any way, now I know this would never happen in D.C. because, you know, they're all good, noble people. Is there any way your legislation, the way you've written it, can be turned against other people. Let's go through a few points, shall we? The first one is hate speech. If you're out there promoting that, you know, oh, the, the colonials, you know, England is a colonial nation and a slave nation and its past is so bad. And you, what you have done in the Middle East is truly horrific. And the same for America. You're the two great Satans. You need to be brought to your knees. You need to, there will be blood in the streets. If you were saying that, it's very easy to kind of go, well, John, that's hate speech. We don't want that. That's, look, he's calling for blood in the streets. You know, he's saying we're a bad nation. You know, that, you know, he's, that's an open act of threat. We don't want them. Okay. I got it. I understand your point. But do you have a right to free speech? Is there a limit on any type of speech? Will be the first question I'd ask you. This question of, hey, if someone calls for violence and someone actually does the violence, what's the proportion of the blame? Because I would ask you this as someone who gets very frustrated with my friends on the left when they're like, oh, John, oh, my God, guns kill people. No. No, 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 no. I have never, ever seen a gun by itself randomly target someone and kill them. Every time, without the shadow of a doubt, whether I've seen it or not, I can guarantee you that gun that killed someone, that fired the bullet, it wasn't them. It was someone pulling its trigger and firing it. Where does it stop? 
Where does the line stop between free speech and hate speech? I define that speech as repugnant. I find it vile. I find it disgusting. But do they have a right to say it? That all boils down to where you feel your rights come from. If you believe rights come from government, guess what? You can make the argument and be consistent that says, you know what? No. We'll decide what's allowed to be said and what's not allowed to be said. If you believe it comes from your creator, then you got to do some self-reflection and some soul-searching. But also, I would ask you just to think of this and be very cognizant of this. If you wrote a law that said, you know, you're not allowed to speak out against the states and, you know, incite violence, is there any way that could be used against you who is a freedom lover? I've been very clear on this show. I do not support violence in any way, shape, or form. I'm the guy who promotes Martin Luther King, you know, linking arm in arm. I'm the person who always is the last to, you know, discuss anything violent. I'm always the person who's, no, let's discuss this. Let's win the battleground of ideas. But if you had, I don't know, and again, I know this would never happen in America because your media is so honest, your politicians are so honest, like they would never call someone like me a racist. Oh, that's right, you already did. <gasps> You'd never call me a sex. Oh, that's already did. You'd never call me Islamophobe. You've already done it. See how things get changed? But is there a possibility that if you passed hatefully, hate speech regulation and rules that you could look at me and kind of go gee i listened to john's show i listened to this freedom's disciple guy she he seems to have a problem with the u.s government you know what we need to lock him up you know you saw this happen in a couple of weeks ago in the virginia rally where oh my god the white supremacists are coming and it wasn't that in fact there was more threats to them than there was to anything else and they weren't white supremacists You look at the people who are just law-abiding, who are just so ticked off at their governor passing gun legislation. They went, no, we are pro-Second Amendment. Is there any way that you could have that hate speech turned around on you? Just something to think about. And I'm not even, I'm not even near finished. Which brings me to the second point that I'll talk about. Well, there are people who, you know, John, they're, okay, we can maybe agree on speech. But what about these people that fund these terrorist organizations? Okay, what's the prime there? What way do you want to fix these issues? Because again, if you have a simple legislation that says you shall not give any of your money to an organization we deem as terrorists, what do you think would happen if you passed that legislation? Do you think, how long do you think it would take for the NRA to be described as a terrorist organization? How long would it take for the Convention of States to be defined as terrorists? How long would it be till any free speech or any pro-life movement was described as terrorists? You see, it's all well and good to kind of go, just let's just deal with this problem. This is terrorism. We got to get serious. We got to get tough on terrorism. I agree wholeheartedly. Terrorism is a problem in the world. The question is whether I is not whether I think you should get tough on it. The question is how do you actually have a discussion about this legislation? And understand that the legislation that some people are calling for will be turned around eventually. It might take a year, it might take 10 years, but will eventually be turned around on them. Which leads me to another point that is linked in with what people are talking about in the UK. Well, okay, look, maybe we can agree on hate speech. Okay, maybe. But what about these people who are openly promoting terrorism? 
What about all these people that are openly promoting ISIS? What about these small set of people who are talking about, you know, if their belief in certain things like the return of the Mahdi, you know, where he's going to be the end times? Okay, what's the punishment there? By the way, I don't have all the answers to this. I'm just trying to have a discussion with you to get people to think. I don't know the answer to this. I don't know how you even start writing this legislation. I'm not, I'm being honest with you. But you could actually have, again, twisted, especially in a world where it's becoming more and more secular, where if you read the book of Revelations in the Bible, you could turn around and kind of go, wow, you, you believe in that? All the debt and destruction? All the locusts? All the famines? Wow. Or look what's in your Bible, because not many people read it these days, especially people who hate it. Oh, look at all the death and destruction and, you know, you know, talking about slaves and servants. You know, that's a, that's a hate. That's promoting hate speech. That's promoting violence. Now, again, if you use common sense, we all know this is absurd. But you see the arguments that would be put around. There's a guy in, in England. He's, I think he's Australian. He's a rugby player and he's very outspoken for his Christianity. And he puts a meme up, which I don't agree with. Because it is, but it's his opinion. It's basically the things that you do if you and you're going to hell. I think the first one is excessive drinking. The second one is cheating on your spouse, you know, uh, adultery. And there's a load of this, you know, lying, cheating, different things. Uh, you know, tr- abusing your body. But in there is homophobia. He says gay marriage is wrong and you go to hell. Now, he talks about all this different things. You know, you could talk about, to someone like me, who is a Christian? Okay, if you drink alcohol to excess, are you going to hell? I don't know. The honest answer. But no one ever wants to talk about that. Everyone is just talking about he's he's homophobic. He said gay, gay people go to hell. Again, I don't know. This is God's job, not my job. But it can be so twisted. What pr- principles are you promoting? Can they be twisted against you? Do you really trust the government? Oh, I'm going to talk about anti-government conspiracies again. But do you trust the government with legislation that says, hey, about hate speech, about funding, about promotion? Not to be turned around on you eventually? Especially if you chat, follow the course that everyone in America thinks you're following, where you're going more and more left and more and more socialist? If you're a believer in freedom, or you know, if I may use the label that I believe is wrong, if you're on the right... Is that something you're comfortable giving the government that power over? Which leads me to the next principle. Actual violence. What is the punishment for actual violence? If you, you know, stab a load of people and they're not dead, but it's for terrorist reasons, what happens? What legislation do you want to pass then? Is there a difference between a terrorist attack and just normal, you know, if, let me give you an example. If I stab you, whether it's critical or not, because you looked at me funny, because, I don't know, you, you bumped into me on the street, or because I saw you and you're a white man and you're clearly a Christian and you're a Muslim and hey, you saw me went and stabbed me to death. Or stab me just even, not, you know, not fatal, but just, you stab me three or four times. Is there a difference in those attacks? Or should it just be carte blanche that, you know, you do these, you're, you know, you go to jail for X amount of period of time? Or should there be discussions? 
but also likewise to the people involved in the attacks. Do they have a right to due process? Do they have a right to the appeals process? Do they have a right to, you know, show good behavior in prison and then get out early? Do they have any of these rights? Or is it a case of, well, it's terrorism, you just lose all your rights? Because if you start thinking that way, again, do you trust your government not to turn this around on you? You see, part of the problem that we I see in this world right now is because everything is based around Twitter and social media and sound bites on media on shows, you know, to get into that little ticker on CNN, to have that little 10 second clip that's repay, played repeatedly, whether they like it or not, on every the top of every news hour. Everything is so simple. We'll all take our positions. Well, you know, I'm more, you know, terrorism is bad. And I agree with you. Terrorism is really bad. It's never, there's no redeeming quality about terrorism. But is there a chance that you are taking a leap of faith by trusting your government to pass legislation without an honest discussion, without an honest debate about these things that are just based around terrorism that eventually can be used against you, especially if you believe in a difference of opinion with your government? Especially if you're not in love with your government. Should we just pass these par planche? Or should we actually have a debate around the principles of them? Because if you're different, if you're kind of going, I don't know whether terrorists have due process. Whether they have the right to an appeals process. I'd ask you just to think of one story, which I love from your revolution. And it took a lot of bravery to do this. But the Boston Massacre, when the English soldiers fired into the crowd in Boston, John Adams defended the English soldiers in question because he believed in due process. He believed in the rights of the individual. He believed everyone was entitled to a fair trial and an adequate defense. And to make matters worse, can you imagine what it was to have been like for John Adams? Can you imagine what it must have been like for his family? In a town of Boston where it's small, you know, in the, in the revolutionary terms, everyone knows each other to a certain extent. And here you have this person who defends the English soldiers. Can you imagine how you must have felt all that resentment towards him? And then he becomes a great founding father and then becomes the second president of the United States and the first vice president of the United States. Can you imagine how you must have felt? But what did he do what was right? Is what he did defending the English soldiers, is that noble? Is that good? Is that how the justice system should work? Or was he just a hack who should never have done it because we're at war, baby? These are the questions we need to start having discussions around with people. And we need to start putting our political swords down where, I'll be honest with you, I am very anti-terror. I think the world is very soft on terror in a lot of places. I see what's happening and I see some of these terror attacks and it's all oh, your rights, your rights, your rights. And I got it. I'm very belie- much a believer in let's get it tough on terror. The question isn't whether we should get tough on it or not. The question is how. And how do you give government power to get tough on terrorism that can't be turned around on its own citizens after a period of time? And I'll explain why that's a big deal next.
the show or you disagree with me on anything or you want to get in touch, get a, you can get in touch with me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Freedom Disciple, Facebook, Jonathan Dunn, or uh, America's Favorite Irishman, same on Instagram. Drop me a message, drop me a friend request. I love engaging with you guys and discussing everything with you guys, whether you agree with me or disagree with me. The reason I talk to you about the terrorism first is because I want to talk to you about what's going on in another country around the world. And again, I want to talk to you based around our human rights and where they come from. What's going on in China right now? It's very hard to get a read on. You know, if you look at articles and you try and do research, which I try to do for this show, and actually kind of go, hey... What's actually going on? It's very hard to get a read on it. But there's enough there that's very troubling that talks to you about rights. You see, in China, you don't have any rights as an individual. It's all about the state, baby. Whatever the state says you have to do, you do. This is one of my big frustrations with a lot of administrations around the world. They are very, very soft on China. Or what I believe, not hard enough. Now, maybe it's a case of I'm looking that true with my glasses on of someone who grew up and loved Ronald Reagan, who believes in, you know, we should be calling them the evil empire. I know there's a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with that rhetoric or maybe have forgotten who Ronald Reagan was, which I find a shame, but that's the type of guy I am. I believe in calling out the evil empire. For me, for me, at best, China is just as bad as Soviet Russia. And at worst, is a million times worse. So that's the maybe you can say I'm just looking at a true rose tinted glasses. But what is going on there with the the coronavirus which apparently we're not allowed to call the coronavirus anymore because apparently this world is just so filled with racism and bigotry that you know apparently you know if we call it the coronavirus the coronavirus the coronavirus the coronavirus cuz I'm not playing the game. Um you're all going to think oh my god uh See, I even did it. I was going to think you think Mexican. Corona, beer, lime, beer, great beer. I love Corona. It's a beautiful beer. It's a wonderful beer. It's a very great tasting beer, if I may quote your president. It's wonderful. It's huge. It's awesome. It's the best, it's the, it's the best tastiest beer out there. I like it. I love it. But I don't think of, you know, Asian people. But I want to talk to you about our rights. Because as we just spoke about terrorism, China, I believe, is the poster child for a totalitarian government that you don't want to mess with. And I don't want to talk about the coronavirus per se, because I don't know whether this is really bad. I said to you this, what, two, three weeks ago when I started talking about this on this show, I look at what the numbers are and the figures that they're releasing. If that, you're talking about a couple of thousand cases and a hundred people dead, which is really bad. I'm so sorry for everyone who died and it was going through all this pain and suffering. But is that something you build a hospital for in seven days? So there's something that in my head, and also I have a great distrust for China. Again, maybe that's my glasses on. That when China says something to me, I kind of go, I'm going to take that with a pinch of salt. You know, trust but verify. But no trust when it comes to China. 
But let's say there's a pandemic around the world. Let's say there's, you know, I don't know, think of, you know, bird flu or whatever flu you want to think of. Just think of the worst, but just make sure it's not a racist name, okay? Just don't think of, like, coronavirus. But let's say there's this big pandemic, and it's highly contagious. It's highly fatal. Like, if you get it, you know, there's a better than 50-50 chance you're dead. Where do your rights go? Where? What rights do you have? How do you solve that virus? Do you have a right to, you know, still talk out? Do you have a right to do, you know, Facebook videos and kind of go, hey, I have this virus, you know, you want to stay away, it's a lot worse than it is, and let the world know? Or do you expect when you do that to to get a little note from your government kind of going, yeah, you need to take that back or things are not going to end well for you, which is what happened in China, by the way. Do you have a right to, you know, medicine, if you can pay for it? Do you have a right to, you know, live? Or are your rights just automatically taken away that, you know, if you get this virus, you know, to stop it because the world is at stake, your rights just go out the window. That if we don't like you and, or sorry, not that we don't like you, but we think you have it, we're going to put you in quarantine. Like, have you seen some of the videos that's coming from China? Where you literally have these people in a version of a hazmat suit, literally dragging people from their homes. Do you have a right to stay in your home? Or do you have a right to no rights and basically where you you go wherever the government says you do? Do you have a right to say, no, I don't want to go to your concentration camp or your quarantine camp or your internment camp? Whatever word we decide to label it as today. Do you have that right What's going on in China is the poster boy for understanding why rights are important. But also when we talk about rights, we also have to talk about, are we living in a world where we are truly responsible for our actions? Like if you got this virus that was highly contagious, would you be responsible enough to go, you know what? I can't believe I'm sick. It really sucks. I'm going to lock myself in a room and I'm not going to come into contact with anyone until I'm better. Or would people just say, oh, I, I just have this, I only have the sniffles. It's not that big virus. I just, I have the flu <coughs> and I'm coughing up blood, but it's, it's fine. It's totally fine. I just got to get to my job or I just got to go to the grocery store. And then, they'd, you know, you cough in your hand <coughs> and then you'd shake someone's hand. Do you have that responsibility? I know I've made a bit of a joke about it, but just to highlight a point. Do we have that responsibility? Do we have the rights and responsibilities in people today? Because I see the world, and we're going to talk about it in the last bit of the show. I have so much optimism for the world. I believe we can get to a point where we can truly live freer than we ever lived before. But if we want to live free, we need to understand some principles. And we need to actually start having these discussions with people. And it's so frustrating as someone who's an outsider, and this happens in Ireland and England and America, where people who have a different of opinion are deemed the enemy. Well, guess what? If you deem them the enemy, you're never, ever, ever going to make any breakthroughs. We need to start discussing basic principles. Let's start with where do rights come from? Do you have a right to live free? 
Or are your rights subjective to the occasion that you find yourself in? That you, uh, you may have rights when things are good, but if the coronavirus or another vaccine or another virus comes along and we want to pull you from your home and put you in quarantine, tough. There's also these stories you hear about. There's, there was a tragic story on an English, one of the English shows I saw. I didn't, I didn't, I don't watch the show. I don't get to watch much TV. I, I'm like you. I get to see the clips of interviews where literally you have people who are married on this ship. That's in quarantine. And they're breaking up people who are married. Now, let's say you're really sick. And yes, you have the virus. And let's say it's a 100% fatality rate. Do you have a right to spend your last hours, minutes, days, weeks in quarantine with your wife or husband? Or does the government have a right to come along and go, you two are no longer together. You two are no longer together. Whether you're married a week, because some people are only on their honeymoon on this boat, or people who are married 40 years. Do you have that right to decide? Or when things are bad, are you just, you know, it's up to the political whim of the political parties and those in power get to decide what you have to do. These are the questions we need to start asking ourselves. Because here's one of the reasons I'm optimistic for the future. Is if you live in Ireland, what hope have you got? What hope have you got? You live in England, what hope have you got? You live in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Europe, Asia, Australia. Where's your hope? Where's your solutions come from? Where do you start having this debate? I got no freaking clue. I don't know how you sparked that debate. Where do you get that debate? Where, where do you start in America? Your founding fathers. You have the roadmap to success. You know, this idea that America became a success and a, an amazing nation by mistake is something that needs to be addressed. You just didn't take a 5,000-year leap in advancement by mistake. It wasn't by, you know, well, here's what we're going to do, John. America's going to get those two dice and we're going to shake them up real good and we're just going to roll them. And if it happens to, you know, you roll a hard eight, you roll a hard eight and then America's a success. But if you don't, oh, well. It, it wasn't luck. It wasn't chance. It was by principles. This idea of man yearning to be free. This is not an American principle. This is not even a founding principle. It's a human principle. No man wants to be chained or shackled by its government. But what we do is we discuss it in certain terms of, well, you know, what's right for the greater good? What's best for society? We need to start having these discussions because what's happening in England with terrorism, what's happening in China and potentially around the world with this coronavirus. Yes, I'm clearly a racist because I won't call it the new name. But uh, let me tell you this. If you think I'm a racist and you're that's what you're worried about, that shows you the problems we have in this world. The people are offended by a freaking name. Oh my God, he called it the coronavirus. Can you feel the racism dripping? No. No, I can't. I can hear me talking about what everyone called it from the start. But now we're, instead of this serious pandemic, this serious case we're having, instead of discussing about principles and about freedoms and about God-given rights, about, you know, getting treatment 
about principles based around the individual and, you know, not been quarantined and tied up by their government and not taken from their homes and not stripped because, hey, you and your husband or you and your wife can't stay together anymore. We're separating you. Instead of talking about these rights, we're now talking about a freaking name. At some point, we got to get serious. At some point, we got to get real. And at some point, we have to have these discussions. And if you're being honest, we want to talk about responsibility. Whose responsibility is it to have these discussions? And let me use what I always hear from my friends on the right. Oh, John, you know, you're so wrong about my friends on the left. Look, they're all big socialist, big government people. They don't understand America and American exceptionalism. Okay, well, let's say you're tr- you're right. Then whose responsibility is it to promote American exceptionalism? You've just abdicated their responsibility because, as you say, they don't know it. They don't understand it like you do. So it's your responsibility to work even harder to get these principles out. It's your job to start talking about the Constitution. It's your job to actually understand the Declaration of Independence. Because I would ask you this question just to think about at the weekend. I want you to think about everyone you know or your vision of people on the left, of what you believe they think about socialism. And I want you to think about everyone on the right and think about what they visualize as freedom as the Declaration of Independence. And ask yourself one hard question. How much do they actually know about either of those? How much do they actually know? How much do they actually, have they researched those ideas? How much have they actually gone into, you know, discussing them and debating them? And actually gone through the rigors of having sleepless nights over those principles? You know, where you're tossing and turning, kind of going, I wonder, am I, do I believe this or do I believe that? But what about this point? And what about that point? And actually having that debate inside your head to find out where you stand on the issues, whether it's the right side or the wrong side. Or how many people do you know that just go with the flow? That they're just a Democrat or they're just a Republican because, well, that's just the way I always have been. And even though parties have changed over the last four, six, eight, ten, twenty years, they still identify as a Republican or a Democrat. Do you think the problem in our world is now that we have too much information and that we have too much truth and we have too much logic and reason? Or do you think the problem is we don't have enough of it? major platforms look for freedom's disciple if this is your first show welcome hope you enjoy the show please subscribe um also if you happen to listen on itunes which is our biggest platform please leave us a review they seem to have taken down the rating system i don't know what they're doing over there but if you leave us a review even if you don't listen on itunes it really helps us find new people and i'm determined to get this show to to reach as many people as i can because i believe principles are an important part of our society and whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I think they need to be discussed more. So I want to finish up today's show by talking to you about something I'm very optimistic about. You know, one of the things I say on this show on a regular basis that always gets 
you know, a bit of criticism or gets under your skin is I defend the left. Sorry, let me be more specific. I actually defend, you know, members of the Democratic Party. I don't defend the media. I don't defend the politicians. But I also go, you know what? Not every person who votes for Democrat is a communist, a socialist, a hippie, you know, all the typical things that everyone says about the left. And I want to prove, talk to you today and prove how what I say is not just my opinion anymore. It's starting to become fact. And then I want to talk to you about our role going forward. I want to talk to you about your two elections that you've had. And I'm not here to promote any candidate, but I want to talk to you. If everyone, if people who talk to me and say, ah, John, you're wrong about the left. They are all, you know, socialist, communist hippies who want free drugs and free love and all that type of stuff. First question to you, if you believe that. Is Bernie Sanders the perfect candidate for the left then? Like, if you think have this vision of the typical Democrat being that, you know, communist, socialist, hippie who wants free drugs and free love, can you think of a better candidate than Bernie Sanders? And an actual candidate. Sure, I'm sure there are people who kind of go, well, you know, if only he was not white and not male and not straight, he'd be a lot better. Okay, but think of an actual candidate. Is there a better one? Is there one who's been more consistent and who's more well-known as the socialist in the Democratic Party than Bernie Sanders? You know, whether you're a Democrat or a Democratic Socialist, you all know who Bernie Sanders is, right? He's got that name recognition. So can you think of someone else better? Yet look at what happened in Iowa. So if the myth is to be believed, everyone is, on the left, is a big socialist government type person then if that's true why did bernie sanders only get 26.1 percent of the vote in iowa now people might go well look there's a bit of a split in this election john you know you're not being fair you know bernie sanders yes he might be the poster child but you know he also has competition from elizabeth warren okay in iowa elizabeth warren got 18 percent that's combined 44 percent that's not even a majority of americans on the democratic party who voted in these two states. Why is that? Why is it that the perceived, even though they're not, non-socialist people got the majority of the vote in Iowa? And also then this week, you might go, well, Iowa's tainted, John. Okay, let's, let's move on to New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders, even after that big swell and that bit of momentum from Iowa, only got 25.7% of the vote. And Elizabeth Warren only got 9.2% of the vote. So now the share in New Hampshire is down to just under 35%. We're down to a third now. If everyone is so big on socialism, why is it they're not voting for the openly socialist candidate who has a long track record of it? Why is that? But I'll ask you just to, before you answer, just put that little point, just put a pin in that point, and let's talk about a poll. Even though I hate polls, they can be a good indicator of what's going on in society. And Gallup is one of the more well-known polls. And I want to talk to you about some of the things they found in a poll recently, in a poll in the middle of last year. They talked about socialism. 
there's a question that they based on what's your willingness to vote for a party's well-qualified candidate for president based on character statistics they asked about black catholic hispanic jewish woman evangelical christian gay lesbian under 40 over 70 muslim atheist and socialist now, as you can imagine, a lot of these figures, they did it from 1958, 1983, 2007, 2015, and 2020. As you can imagine, a lot of them are up. So if you look at the, the willingness to vote for a black person in 2015, it was 92%, it's now 96. Willingness to vote for a Catholic in 2015 is 93, it's now 95. A willingness to vote for a Hispanic was 91 in 2015, it's 94 in 2020. Jewish, 91 to 93. Woman, 92 to 93. Evangelical Christian was 73 in 2015. It's now 80. It was 74 for a gay or lesbian. It's now 78. It was 60% in 2015 for a Muslim. It's now 66. Atheist was 58% in 2015. And it's now 60% in 2020. So you have all these characteristics, black, Catholic, Hispanic, Jewish, woman, evangelical, Christian, gay and lesbian, Muslim and atheist. Everyone is more willing to vote for them. Yet it's different on the last answer. In 2015, 47% of people said they were willing to vote for a socialist. In 2020, it's 45%. Why is that percentage going down? Just pin, let's put that one in a pin just for one second. There was a question done by Gallup last year in a poll. And the headline from it was, more Americans now see socialism as a good thing for the country compared to 1942. Let me give you the numbers that they had. In 1942, 25% viewed socialism as a good thing. That number went up to 43%. Everyone, oh my God, you see, John, you see, look, socialism is on the rise. It's all these people. Yes, they never focused in on the other number, really. The percentage of people who think it's a bad thing for the economy. It was 40% in 1942. It's now 51%. The big loser in that was the person who had no opinion. In 1942, it was 34%. It's now 6%. So everyone, whether they like it or hate it, has an opinion on it. We need to be people who believe in truth. And when, even when the truth hurts, you got to talk about, you know, we got issues to address. And sometimes the argument will go our way and sometimes it won't. But we always got to be about truth. This myth, which I think these numbers bear out, is a myth. That everyone on the left is just a socialist communist hippie. Can we finally put that to bed? Are there people on the left who are very bad people? Absolutely. Are there people on the left who want full outblown communism? Absolutely. But here's the thing. It's clearly not even the majority of people. If it was, Bernie Sanders would be running away with this. But also, I would ask you to look, if you want to delve deeper into numbers, yeah, you're saying Bernie Sanders has won, and why has he, has he, is he winning all these if America isn't, the Democrats aren't familiar and okay with the, with socialism? Look at the numbers. They're down. They're down. 
there is no groundswell for Bernie Sanders. You know, you had all this impeachment stuff going on. A lot of these caucus sites and primary sites were expecting the vote to go up. It either stagnated or went down. Now, I know it's only two states, so take this with a pinch of salt. It could be different elsewhere. But is there that feeling first? How much of a percentage do you need to see the Democrats vote for Bernie Sanders to say, Amer- you know, American left is for socialism? We have a great opportunity in front of us. I believe we have a great opportunity because here's another question I would ask you. To those people who said yes to socialism, who were saying yes to Bernie Sanders, how many people of them do you know actually have thought about socialism and actually understand what socialism actually means? Or do you think there's a good chunk of those people who went, oh, well, socialism, that, that means to be social, right? Like, like I like being social. I'm a socialist. I love going out to the bar with my friends. So, yeah, of course, I'm a socialist. How many people actually understand the actual meaning of it? And actually, it's history. And actually why it's been a bad thing, how it's never been a real success anywhere it's been instituted. How many people actually know that? How many people actually understand about countries like Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, China? How many people are dealing with the full deck of knowledge and went, I know pretty much a lot of stuff about socialism and communism and I love it. Or do you think it's just been sold to them, it's spun to them? It's made look hip and cool, and all the young people are kind of going, yeah, I'm a socialist, yeah, that's the cool thing to say. It's the, it's the right thing to say, it's the right answer, unless you want to be, you know, thrown from a building, metaphorically, for your beliefs. <gasps> You're not one of those right-wingers, are you? And yet, despite all of this, they still don't have a majority. Now, what are our options? Because I want to talk to you about those polls and our way forward. Our option is one of two things. Actually, we have three options. One, we can just go with the the assumption that, you know what? They are all socialists. I just do nothing. Just, uh, look, it is what it is. Just be apathetic. Eh, this is the way it is. Nothing I can do. Okay, that's one option. Option number two is we continue, which a lot of people do in certain places, where we just demean them. We just insult them. We don't just, we just, you know, they're just second-class citizens. And then we let them continue to peel over where we're not trying to sell them, where we're trying to sell them this idea of Donald Trump or this idea of the Republican Party. And they're like, I don't like that. And then they go to Bernie Sanders or they go to, you know, another candidate. Or we have option three where we can actually discuss things not based around political parties, not based around people, but are based around ideas where we can actually try and have meaningful discussions and actually engage in them on why principles matter why freedom matter why this idea of socialism at its fundamental core is all about government and we're about the opposite we're about freedom we're about individual liberty baby we're about individual rights and that you're not just a number to a state that you're an individual and that you matter regardless of how you voted in the past because i would ask you just to look listen to these statistics on a poll There was this poll that they did, and they talked about free markets. There's the idea of people who have this idea of free markets. This Gallup poll last year went through, what do you want to lead on these sectors of society? Was it the free market or was it the government? Technological innovation. 75% free market, 19% government. 
The distribution of wealth, 68% free market and 28% government. The economy overall, 62% free market, 33% government. Wages, you know, $15 minimum wage, you know, help the poorer people, 62% free market, 35% government. Higher education, which is a thing both parties suck on, 56% free market, 41% government. Healthcare, 53% free market, 44% government. This is where it goes and the other flips over. Protecting consumers' privacy online, 40% free market, government 57%. And environmental protection, free market 30, government 66. Guys and girls, we can have a conversation all day long about how the left are so bad. And you see all these people like Antifa. And we believe the myths the media wants to spin that this is a democratic socialist party now. Or we can actually have honest discussions and try and educate people. Try and say, look, this is where we, I'm not hating you. I'm not demeaning you. I'm not insulting you. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this discussion with you about these solutions. Because even though in the poll in Gallup in 2019, they were more open. 43% are said socialism was a good type of thing. Yet when you actually talk to about them, the individual issues, very few of them got above 43% when it came to government. Only three issues did. Healthcare, protecting consumers' privacy online, and environmental protection. Everything else was left to the free market. We can make inroads if we base things around principle. If we actually have honest conversations. And we're not yelling at each other, we're not dictating to each other. But here's where I want to finish up and just bring this point on on its head. Because if we don't start discussing all these issues, we're going to have a really troubling time. Because there was one part of this poll which really troubles me. And it's something that should trouble everyone, if you believe in freedom. The willingness to vote for candidates with diverse characteristics, broken down by party ID. The socialist question. The socialist question where I said earlier on, 47% in 2015 said they'd be open to voting for a socialist, now 45 When that was broken down by party ID, as you'd expect, it was heavily Democrat. 76% of Democrats said they'd be open to it. 45% of independents said they'd be open to it. And 17% of Republicans said they'd be open to it. If we don't start having these conversations and discussions... Who in the right mind is a Republican and thinks socialism is a good idea? We need to start singing to the, if I may use the phrase, we need to start singing to the choir as well. We need to be making the case for freedom, uh, for free markets, to Republicans, to Democrats, to independents. Because I believe we have the winning message, especially if we base it not around insults, but around about truth and also historical experience. Why is it the world has advanced 5,000 years in the last 300 years that it didn't advance prior to us? Why is that? What are the excuses? Anytime I raise this question with some of my friends in the Democratic Party, they never have the answer. They never kind of go, well, it was this. It was this, you know, you talk about freedom and the idea and the freedom, you know, of the individual and what America founded and the founding principles. But there's also this scenario, which is a plausible excuse. They never give me that. They just kind of go, well, I get what you're talking about, free markets, but we need some type of control. We need some type of safety net. And then the conversation never goes any further. But we need to have these discussions about freedom. 
But we also need to have discussions about principles, about money. This idea that you think you can take my money just because you you think I earn a certain amount, where does that principle come from? Where does that give you that power? How many people do you know talk about principles today? Honest question. We have a major opportunity ahead of us. Because the Democratic Party is looking at kind of going, you know what? I'm not cool with socialism. Yes, there's always going to be that chunk. And maybe we'll never, ever, ever make inroads in that. Maybe there'll always be that 20% of the Democratic Party, which will always be socialist. Then let's talk about the 80%. And instead of demeaning them, insulting them, let's give them a reason. Because one of the most frustrating things I see as someone who used to be involved in politics and now, is how the attitudes have changed in towards the people. And this happens in Ireland and England and America and around the world. The way the attitude towards voters has changed, it has flipped. Back when I used to be involved in politics, you had to earn someone's vote. You had to go and go, I'm going to make you the best case of why you should vote for me. Now, everyone acts like you're, you're entitled to the vote. That if you're a Republican, Donald Trump is somehow entitled to your vote. That if you're a Democrat, Bernie Sanders or ever who the nominee will be is automatically entitled to your vote. They're not. They've got to earn it. And if they don't earn it, it's not on you for being an ideologue. It's on them. It's on them for not winning your votes. The guys and girls that I've said this a couple of times, the future is what we make of it. I believe our future is bright. I believe we have a great opportunity ahead of us to make the case for freedom. Especially if certain candidates are running, are just continuing on in the democratic field. We can make this about the Bernie Sanders or Amy Klobuchar or Andrew Yang or Joe Biden. God bless Joe Biden, coming in fifth. I did find that one funny. Or we can make it about principles. We can make it about, let's have a discussion about freedom. Let's have a discussion about why America is exceptional. Because that is a discussion I don't see enough people talking about today. I don't understand or why American exceptionalism being discussed is a bad thing. And I say this on both sides of the aisle. Your future is in your hands. Your future is what you make of it. I can't tell you what to do, nor will I ever think I have that right, or nor will I ever try. But what I will be is your biggest cheerleader on the sidelines going, Hey! This is why you're exceptional. Follow these principles. This is why you were exceptional before, and this is what will make you exceptional again. Do you remember that Statue of Liberty? Be like her. That's what I need. That's what the world needs so badly right now. And you can make it happen. I know this because each and every generation of Americans has had an obstacle to face, and each and every generation of Americans has overcome that obstacle. And you will overcome this obstacle again if you're willing to make the sacrifice, if you're willing to put in the hard work. And if you're willing, yes, sometimes to bang your head off a brick wall. But the bigger picture, freedom is worth it. Freedom is worth it to live free, but also to pass on a freer world and a more prosperous world to our kids and our grandkids is worth it. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, Y'all have a beautiful and blessed week, and we salute your police, your firefighters, your emergency personnel, and your vets. And lastly, if the last thing I want you to hear from me, America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. Until next Saturday, 
God bless. God bless America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network.